Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a Richmond review of Martin's dominance and the bigger issue of what it means for the rest of the field, a discussion of the big three in the Xfinity series, and more importantly, who will be the fourth, and our preview of the Roval. But first, as always, this is episode 36 of Positive Regression. This is the Ernie Irvin edition. David, what an interesting driver, Ernie Irvin. First and foremost, you know, what number do you associate him with? Is it the four car? He won the Daytona 500. The 28 car, the infamous, obviously, Haviland scheme. And for our purposes this week, we're choosing a beautiful car and number, the number 36, rainbow-colored, Skittles-sponsored ride that he drove in the late 90s. What a ride, David. Yeah. Um, before we get to the paint schemes, because he had some good ones, we didn't witness a healthy Ernie Irvin and his prime years. And that is an absolute shame because it was clear in 1991 to 1994 that we were going to see something special, uh, something pretty amazing. And in the 1994 season, uh, it was cut short after 20 races. He suffered a traumatic head injury in practice at Michigan Speedway. Uh, but in those 20 races, he secured three victories for Robert Yates Racing. He scored a 4.475 production and equal equipment rating, and he was second in points at the time of that accident. It should be said, Dale Earnhardt that year had the best peer, uh, but it was only a 4.532. So it was close between those two guys. I think Mr. Earnhardt got a little bit lucky uh, in that regard. I do think we missed out on a heck of a championship battle that season. But uh, look, we we talk about this, I think, with all athletes across sports when we see someone get hurt, uh, injured as dramatically as he did. We just want them to be okay. We don't uh, necessarily want them to come back and retire on their own terms, but Usually these athletes that have clawed all the way to the top are headstrong and want to do it. And I'll be damned if Ernie Irvin did not uh, claw his way all the way back three victories after the head injury. Um, that's proving doubters wrong for sure. Absolutely. And I have a good friend or I have a, who was an Ernie Irvin fan and still to this day, like much like I am a Rusty Wallace fan, right? And, uh, he would always bring up to me and he said something to me, David. I think I mentioned this to you before, but you know, from his, his being a fan of Ernie Irvin, he said, if he doesn't get hurt, Ernie Irvin ends up having Dale Jarrett's career, Dale Jarrett's Ooh. championship winning hall of fame type career. And it was interesting to think about when you just think about the circumstances and how good that Yates car became, obviously, and all the wins that it had. And if it, you wonder and you do all the hypotheticals about what Ernie Irvin would have done in that Yates car as that program started hitting its peak, he, it just always stuck out to me. If Ernie Irvin stays healthy, he has Dale Jarrett's career. And I, I was like, maybe you are right. So that is an interesting thought because in 1999, the year Dale Jarrett won his championship, Ernie Irvin would have been 40. He would have been in his prime. He would have been 39 the year before when Jarrett finished third in points in a Robert Yates car. So that is not a far-fetched thought. I mean, we, gosh, we really missed a lot because Ernie coming on so, so strong, he had those three seasons in a row where he won 
three races and just that 94 season, he was 35 years old that year. It was going to culminate into something pretty spectacular. And what do you remember about the, in the twilight of his career? He raced that bright, bright, beautiful, memorable 36 scheme with the Skittles on it. Yeah, and I, I, I do want to throw in, just because I'm a fan of the scheme, the Skittles Wildberry car. Uh, he unfortunately crashed that in, I want to say, 1998 at Daytona in the uh, postponed July race. So it was postponed to October because of the wildfires. But that thing was pink and fluorescent, and man, that thing, it looked great under the lights. Um, but yeah, I, I know that Derek Cope was the original Skittles driver. Ernie Irvan, though, was the one that uh, originally made it memorable. That sponsorship eventually morphed into the M&M sponsorship that you see nowadays with Kyle Busch. But I like to think Ernie put it on the map. Sure. And yeah, memorable scheme. I remember, you know, racing quarter midgets and kids showed up that next year, uh, with, with Skittles type paint schemes on their quarter midgets. So, hey, whatever makes an impression and just crazy to think about. Ernie Irvin last raced in 1999 in the cup series. 20 years have gone by. Episode 36 of positive regression, the Ernie Irvin edition. All right, let's start off what we've uh, been doing for the playoffs anyway. Just a quick five-minute review of Richmond. It can be summed up in two words, Martin Truex. Uh, David, uh, I hope you don't mind. Uh, you know, we text during the race, and when Martin Truex made a pass for the lead with about 50 laps into the race, you texted me. Uh, I think we just saw the winning pass for this race. <laughs> it, and while it wasn't the winning pass then, it was very telling of what, what kind of night it would be when Martin Truex got the lead and ultimately, uh, you know, showed up the the rest of the field by the end. Um, but you were basically correct there. Martin Truex Jr. dominated again. Uh, we expected him maybe, to, you know, to have a good uh, show going in to the weekend. He showed that in practice, and he certainly showed that in the race. This didn't seem like much of a surprise. We went into this race suggesting that this was a track, Richmond, that you could not fake a performance for as much as crew chiefs will define the playoffs going forward, there would be no strategizing toward a result at Richmond. It came down to speed, and Truex had the long-run speed necessary to win. Joe Gibbs Racing had that in spades. They ranked first, second, third, and fifth for the race in central speed. There was... Some passing, but not a whole lot. Once the fastest cars filtered to the front, uh, as we said, it was over. If you weren't part of JGR's night, then it was probably a very frustrating evening. I can imagine. And that frustration boiled over into some uh, telling quotes uh, from the athletic writer, Jordan Bianchi, that he got from uh, Rodney Childers. I believe the quote was here, tonight it wasn't worth a shit. Obviously, they finished one, two, three, four, talking about Joe Gibbs Racing. They've got something everyone else does not. They've got more grip than everybody else. There was no one going to be able to run with them tonight. David, that is a... Uh, some some honesty from Rodney Childers there, some emotion that we don't often see, especially at least in quote form. And when they're talking about grip, we're not talking about arrow grip that we always talk about, you know, just checking with people. We are talking about mechanical grip, something uh, that they have found, the Gibbs cars, that other teams apparently do not have. What do you take away from the uh, assessment of Rodney Childers gave? Just a hunch here. I know 
nothing of what Rodney Childers is feeling, but I believe his frustration isn't isolated to Richmond. Remember at Las Vegas, Truex passed Harvick and put a one-second distance on him within two laps of the pass. That was a brand of speed Harvick sure didn't have. And the number four car was the top car on the mile and a half intermediates this season. I think Childers is coming to the realization that his team, and maybe Stuart Haas as a whole, isn't as well off as he originally thought. The degree to which he's panicking, if that is indeed what this is, depends on the amount of work they need to do in order to catch up to Joe Gibbs Racing. Kansas is in the next round. Texas is in the third round. Homestead is the finale. We know that this is a problem. We do not know the extent to which it is a problem. He won't articulate it, although in the past he's revealed a lot of things he probably should not. But Childers might think they're a significant step below JGR. I think what uh, he articulated to Jordan was a little bit of a, a telling poker face. How do you mean? What does that phrase mean, telling poker face? I I think Childers is one to not keep his cards close. I think he is proud when they have something to work with. I think he's visibly down when they don't. And I think he was caught in a vulnerable moment Saturday night. They've had their clocks cleaned for two straight weeks to the same team, to the crew chief that if you're going to have a discussion of the best crew chiefs in NASCAR, it's Rodney Childers or it's Cole Pern. Well, he's he's losing ground to the other guy right now. Going into these playoffs, I'm not so sure that we would have thought the four team would have trailed the 19 team. As of right now, I think it's a certainty. I think Martin Truex has the field covered. I think Joe Gibbs Racing is a step ahead of everyone, and that includes Kevin Harvick's team. Absolutely. And maybe that's not a surprise, but we are two races into this playoff. Martin Truex Jr. has won them both. But has is anything has anything surprised you, David? Anything caught us off guard, if you will? To me, I think it is the separation of the haves and the have-nots among the playoff contenders. It's clear JGR and maybe even Penske are bringing some heat. Um, I mean, just in regards to Penske at Richmond, Brad Keselowski admitted he thought Penske was a step below JGR. I'm not so sure that Penske is that much below them. They are in terms of speed, certainly, but Penske has enough speed. Keselowski had the fourth fastest car at Richmond. Joey Logano had the second fastest car in Las Vegas. They have enough to be competitive. They also have the drivers able to do some heavy lifting. But outside of those organizations, it's clear Stuart Haas, uh, Hendrick Motorsports, Chip Ganassi Racing, they're off. There is a pretty big chasm. This feels right now like a two-organization battle. And I'm not so sure I felt that way before the start of the playoffs. I thought Harvick and Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson could offer something better than what we are seeing. They're the bellwethers for their organizations, don't get me wrong, but the disparity is pretty vast right now. You did a great article up for The Athletic about Ryan Newman and his path to the playoff, which 
may not sh- have been as surprising as many of us look at it. So I feel bad still being surprised by his performance. But the fact that he's gone out there, got two top tens, I think technically a top five in Richmond, uh, is quite surprising still to me. So I, I still take that as uh, where the hell is this coming from? But look, they're doing it. They're improving. So that that has kind of caught me off guard. And, and Truex and Pern being successful, not a surprise. But David, just looking at the numbers, that combo has 23 wins now. The combo of Adam Stevens and Kyle Busch have 26. And if you were to tell me it was that close without me looking up the numbers, I would have thought Stevens and Bush had far more victories as a combo than, than Pern and Truex. And it just shows you the slow uh, kind of methodical stats and numbers that, that Pern and Truex are putting up. And I know Kyle Busch missed some races with that injury, but it just surprised me how close that gap is closing right now. Yeah, I mean, we're we're now talking about one of the most formidable driver-crew chief combos. Uh, I mean, outside of Jimmy Johnson and Chad Canals, uh, do you place them second uh, from 2000 until now? I, I think we're we might be having that conversation. Good stuff, and we have uh, the, they've set the stage right now for their playoff dominance. We'll see what they do coming up at the Roval. But first, let's take a look at the Xfinity Series field, David, because we spent much of 2018 in the Cup Series talking about the big three. And this year, 2019 Xfinity Series certainly has the big three of its own. Christopher Bell, Cole Custer, Tyler Reddick dominating, collecting the checkered flags, the headlines, the highlights of the Xfinity Series season. Christopher Bell went out in the first race was Richmond for the Xfinity Series playoff. Certainly put out a statement there. But let, let's break down that big three in terms of, is there any separation there, at least in your eyes, between Bell, Custer, and Reddick? Is there one with an advantage? Does one of them trail? Let's break that down. Let, let's start at the top. Who, who is outshining themselves? If you can, is there any separation there? Hmm. Christopher Bell and Tyler Reddick have right now identical production ratings. They both have surplus passing values near plus 5%. That's how close they are to one another from a driving standpoint. From a team standpoint, though, there's a noticeable difference. Reddick's RCR team, which started off the season so strong, so fast off of the heels of uh, the 2018 playoffs with Daniel Hemrick, much improved over previous seasons. They have quietly lost some of the velocity on their fastball, so to speak. The last time Reddick had the fastest car in a race was May 25th at Charlotte. In the 16 race stretch that occurred since then, Christopher Bell had the fastest car seven times and passed Reddick for the top spot in the central speed rankings. So by default, Reddick lost competitive ground to Bell. Now, that doesn't give him a tremendous deficit. Uh, Reddick has still gone out and gotten wins. Uh, the most recent one came at Las Vegas, but... If we're being honest, it was a fuel mileage mm-hmm. victory. He went, what was it, 67-something laps to to close the race. That's not the kind of championship firepower you expect to have from an eventual champion, but it was a win regardless. So they're finding alternative ways to be competitive. Still, that's something that they're just going to have to address moving forward if they want to be able to catch Joe Gibbs Racing and Christopher Bell. 
this format though is kind of crazy in terms of you just need to win david you know what i mean and that's what they did in las vegas and i hate to throw stats out or or numbers or speed because we know what that means to getting the wins but tyler reddick i don't know it seems like there's an intangible of they can get the victories and we saw when he won the championship in 2018 uh this this odd intangible of him and the team just showing up at the right time uh, it's hard to say you know, that's a weakness at all. You know what I mean? Well, that's always going to loom. And then I point back at, look, his peer is right there with Christopher Bell. There's a reason that it's these two guys that are getting Cup Series promotions from the Xfinity Series this year. They're very good, and they are very similar in driving style to one another. It wouldn't shock me to see Reddick pull something uh, out from under him come Homestead. We've seen him do it. We've seen him do it at other tracks. He's perfectly capable of that, and that's an example of a driver doing some heavy lifting for his race team. Custer also collecting checkered flags. What does he have a particular strength, or would you point to something that would, in any you know aspect or any category, that would put him over the other two? Uh, I I don't think he's above the other two. I think he's the third wheel here. Uh, not only is he not in the same production bracket, he hasn't had the fastest car in a race since Chicago land. So he's struggling to keep up with Chris Bell as well. But in addition to that, he is becoming a more well-rounded driver. We should compliment him before we go into his faults. He has improved tremendously over the last two Xfinity Series seasons just in regards uh, to track position. But restarts. He's retaining his preferred groove restart position less often than Reddick and Bell by about 10 percentage points. Guys like Zane Smith, Ryan Sieg, and Noah Gragson have better retention from the preferred groove. Hmm. And the story is true from the non-preferred groove, about 10 percentage points off of Bell and Reddick. It seems he's poised to capitalize on their mistakes, and sometimes that's a good position to be in, but he's a little too dependent on that to say that he's on even footing with those other two across the next six races. Yeah, and when I looked at the the central speed rankings you know, for the year, Custer had shown really good speed at short tracks, and then we go out at Richmond, and I know he was kind of closing at the end, but Christopher Bell went out there and straight up beat him. Yeah, and that was that was one race you could circle and say this could be a Cole Custer night just knowing what we know. And no, that turned out to be a – it was a firewall put up by Chris Bell and kudos to the JGR team. That was a place where they made up some ground. They have done it over the course of the season. They had fast cars at Iowa. Uh, that translated to Richmond, and they went out and took one from another competitor when seemingly that should have been his race. And remember, we talked about the 2018 Big Three in Cup. Uh, they all made it to Homestead, but it was the fourth driver that ended up winning the title in Joey Logano. So in 2019, Xfinity Series, David, the, the Big Three may get to Homestead, but we know there has to be a fourth. So who's it going to be? Who Who is out there that looks to be the best in position to compete with the big three and maybe go out there and win a title and surprise us all. Uh, we are each supposed to have a pick here. I hope I'm not stealing yours, David, but it just seems to me that Austin <laughs> Sindrick is running well at the great, at, at, at the right time, right? Uh, we saw him get those wins. 
uh, in the road courses over the, you know, he hasn't got the oval wins quite yet, but we saw him get some road course wins. Victories are good. Any checkered flags, but he's got great speed. He's got some really good restart numbers. If you compare him to someone like Justin Allgaier, good passing numbers. Again, when you compare him to Justin Allgaier, I do wonder about getting those checkered flags. If Austin Sindrick is going to make it all the way to Homestead. But if I'm picking a fourth, if I have to pick someone who might be the fourth, I think Sindrick has the momentum right now. Did you pick Austin Sindrick or did you pick not Justin Allgaier? Oof. Because solely on speed, that's who I'm taking. The Junior Motorsport 7 team ranks third in central speed, second when omitting the part-time Penske number 12 team. That's race-winning speed, my friend, but it's clear Allgaier is uncomfortable in that car this season. His peripheral numbers, as you said, restarts, they are down. The spectacular restart numbers from a season ago, gone. And when you consider the changes that took place at Junior Motorsports between last year and this year, it's clear the organization as a whole lost some corporate knowledge. Gone are Elliot Sadler and Tyler Reddick, uh, replaced by Noah Gragson, who is a rookie, and then a rotating cast of drivers in the eight car. So right off the bat, the quality of driver feedback has diminished. And as a result, it's taking time to build a car that's able to maneuver in the corners. That's where all Geyer's passes occurred last year. He has straight line speed, plenty of it. We know that from uh, based on timing and scoring data, but he is struggling at the very things he did well last year. And as you said, this is a, a strange format. There are six races to go. All he has to do is figure it out once, twice, and he's right there in it. He becomes an easy fourth title contender. Interesting stuff. Uh, I just wonder... Is there any benefit for Cindric kind of being on the, the over there in Penske being the island to themselves? You know what I mean? No teammates and every other team is this multi kind of this conglomerate of, of either full time teams or I know Penske runs another car sometimes, but it seems like that's the lone wolf over there, at least for the Xfinity series. And I don't know if that will ultimately benefit them or be a detriment to a championship run for Cindric. No, from an organizational standpoint, that is the sleeping giant. Right. If Austin Sendrick were to ever figure it out completely, and I wrote about this for The Athletic, he is very much a work in progress with some really solid peripheral numbers that should make everyone optimistic about his future. But the future's not here yet. Once he does figure that out, look out because he is in position to do very well. Uh, 2020 might be his season, but you know what? You're right. We might see something come to a head at the end of 2019. He's been doing this for two seasons now. Something may click. All right. Let's move on to uh, the, the preview for the Roval going on this weekend. Obviously, Xfinity there as well, the second race for their playoff. But in the Cup Series, it is the cutoff race. And David, I know you pride yourself on a lot of research and analyzing statistics and watching a lot of tape and analyzing each pass and restart. But at the Roval, David, we only have one data point. And I just wonder, first of all, what's that do for you in terms of trying to analyze a trend or a race or be predictive, if you will? What can you look at with one real data point of a race at the Roval that, that maybe we can look at and try to either predict some things or notice some trends 
or what what can you look at when there's so little data in terms of actual historical racing there? Tell me, what do you remember about Kyle Larson's Roval experience? What's the first thing that comes to mind to you? It's got to be the finish, right? I mean, he was wrecked and he was able to keep going and, you know, putter across the finish line when he needed it and got the one point in advance. That's what I remember about Kyle Larson's uh, race, the first memory anyway. I also, when you look back at it, though, he had had a pretty good day. He was he had good speed, good weekend going overall, but he needed a crazy lap at the end to advance. That's what I remember. Okay, you said good speed. How about the best speed? Really? Would you be surprised to learn he had the fastest car in that race? He also led 47 laps. Yeah. Right? So, uh, look, Kyle Larson, not, not one you'd think of for a, a road course ace, but look, they had winning speed last year. Um, but also looking down the results sheet, Ryan Blaney won the race while having the 10th fastest car. Kyle Busch didn't lead a single lap and crashed out, but had the second fastest car, which is all to say this race was such a mess last year that you simply can't point to the race results as anything concrete for this weekend. The one thing that we can point to with a singular data point was that track position mattered, but guaranteed nothing. Even on restarts, we saw some particularly brutal losses. Daniel Hemrick was in last year's race. He lost 10 positions when restarting second. Uh, Eric Jones restarted third and ended up losing 34 spots. Uh, Chase Elliott restarted third on the final restart and lost five spots. You have to be near the front of the field to have a shot at the win, but last year on the Roval, it seemed easy to fumble that away. Interesting. And we were talking about it. We have our, uh, we have race day coming up on FS1, uh, from the Roval. And I, you know, we talk about it on our conference calls and everything. And you think about, you know, Martin Truex had a great day at the Roval, comes away with nothing. Ryan Blaney ends up getting the win and who is Ryan Blaney to his credit has turned himself into a pretty good uh, road course racer this year. But when, when you talk about speed and the, the result and its relationship to the finish, I, I think you just made the case there that I don't know, there's a little volatility at the Roval, maybe just in general, it's not like other road courses. Uh, no, it's not. Well, it's not a road course. It's a road, yeah. right? It's the, it's the first of its kind. So yeah. And I think going into this weekend, my hope is that it doesn't become as similar of a circus. I would like to see some order involved. I know we're not at that, uh, segment, uh, of our preview yet, but you know, a, a cleaner race where we're able to see some road course driving talent, uh, come to the surface, would be nice because that's the one takeaway that we can say for certain last year is that maybe we're not very sure of that data point being any good or have any kind of predictive nature. You mentioned the restarts before and, and, and drivers losing positions. Uh, something we do every week, David, you always point out and it's fun to, to watch during a race. Which lane is better, if you will? So you talked about a guy like Eric Jones losing positions, Chase Elliott losing positions. Which lane on a restart proved to be more advantageous than the other? The inside line was better in the Cup Series race, uh, retaining 73% of the time compared to the outsides 53% of the time. And both of those are high rates. But 
the drops. Alan, we've got to watch out for crashes on restarts. There were uh, three restarts in the Xfinity race that did not go two full laps. There were two in the cup race that did not go two full laps. I'm not a believer in caution trends, but close proximity racing like we see on restarts yields accidents. It's possible that we're going to be subjected to a string of restarts, one after the other this weekend. But look, that's the worst case scenario. It's uh, it's clear to me that contrary to what we see at other tracks where restarts lend themselves to offense, we've talked about maybe this is where drivers panic and they're looking to make their passes during this two-lap window. This weekend, this might be a defensive mindset, doing everything possible to maintain your spot because the potential for losses are huge. And one way to get track position, we always talk about green flag pit cycles and strategy, and that's where obviously uh, crew chiefs come in, which you document oh so well on a weekly basis. Last year, we had eight cautions in the cup race. That includes obviously the two stage breaks, but that also meant that, that made some room for green flag pit strategy. Uh, what did you learn in the one race, and what can we deduce from that potentially for Sunday? This is a road course race, and the backwards road course strategy birthed by Paul Andrews will apply. We'll see it copied. Uh, there were three green flag pit cycles in last year's event. But, Alan, because this game plan is so tried and true, we don't see a lot of variation. The fuel windows are so tight, there isn't really short or long pitting. It's just stops on top of stops. So gains boil down to getting on and off pit road uh, as fast as possible without getting penalized and the execution of the stop itself. Last year, Chase Elliott finished sixth. Could have been better. We talked about that bad late race restart. But he was up in the front of the field thanks in part to Alan Gustafson jumping him 15 spots, including a cycle in the middle part of the race where Elliott moved from 20th to sixth. Now think about that one. I know Elliot is a good road course racer. He's got the two Watkins Glen wins to show for it. But asking any driver to pass 14 cars inside the top half of the field is a tall order. That was a valuable day turned in by Alan Gustafson. And also, let's keep an eye out on the 32 car. Last year, crew chief Randy Cox who I plan to spend some time with uh, this weekend at the track for a special top secret project. He gained Matt DiBenedetto 30 positions in this race last year. DiBenedetto finished 13th for Go Fast Racing. I have a feeling Cox will run that game plan back for Corey LaJoy. So the green flag pit cycles, if you're not paying attention... Uh, they could be worth watching this weekend. I would think so because, I mean, look, the evidence you just put down, the data you just put down, think of all the drivers that will need stage points or that will benefit from stage points or that would benefit from an extra 14 or 30 positions across 
the day. I mean, that is huge. The stage points that will be scored. And we've, we've, look, we've talked about crew chiefs who are doing their thing, who, who is doing uh, a better job than others. And I immediately think of Chad Knauss and what they need to do. William Byron is right there on the cut line. I think two points above it. If they, and we saw him play the, the point, stage point pit strategy game, I think in Sonoma, despite having a really fast car. I wonder if we see something like that this weekend when they know, can they point their way in strategy wise, if you will, and work at it that way to advance themselves in this playoff. And Chad Canals will certainly be one to watch. He did that last year for Jimmy Johnson in the middle portion of the race. It was a pretty big jump to put Johnson up near the front of the field. And when those late race restarts, the accidents we saw late kind of filtered out. Johnson was in position to have his YOLO moment <laughs> at the end of that race. Um, but he didn't get there uh, without assistance. That was, that was Chad Canals. All right. Well, good stuff. I mean, maybe that's something uh, we always ask. What do we want to see this weekend at the Roval? Uh, David, I want that backstretch chicane to matter. And in talking with drivers this week, talking with Kurt Busch, I interviewed him for Race Hub. It sounds like it will a lot because uh, the drivers will have to slow down more than they were last year. I mean, they were booking it through that thing. And just the way they've reconfigured it, it sounds like that backstretch chicane will matter a lot. And when I say matter... Uh, it's, they're relating it to the front stretch chicane right before the finish line where we saw Jimmy Johnson have the ability to have a quick shot at Martin Truex Jr. So maybe we see a little bit more of that. So again, I like to watch the world burn sometimes. So I want that backstretch chicane to matter a little bit. And I would love to see a true battle for that final spot. Look, we have teammates, uh, William Byron and Alex Bowman separated by so few points going for that. It's going to be crew chiefs, two, Really good crew chiefs in terms of decision making. Greg Ives, Chad, uh, Chad Knaus, uh, two young drivers going at it, trying to advance. You know, you, you figure they're going to be playing off each other. The, the strategies each one have, trying to maximize both their stage points, thinking about where they are out there on the track throughout the race. I want that teammate drama again. I apologize for wanting the world to burn, but I want something to talk about come Monday. And if it's between two teammates, you know we'll be talking about it. Wanting the world to burn. Okay, okay there, Heath Ledger Joker. I gotcha. <laughs> I would like to see the emergence of viable passing options, but I admit I don't think it's going to happen. I want the chicane to matter just as well. I think the majority of the action on long runs will occur between uh, the second turn of the oval and the entrance to the chicane. And even then, those passes depend simply on outbreaking your competitor. Not a lot of room for creativity when making a pass. So you have to nail your breaking point. Um, and if you do, it might take you a long way. Outside of that, Alan, I'm flummoxed on where passing might take place. That goes back to our discussion on restarts and pit strategy, why those kinds of things are so important. Because from where I sit, and I think this is the case with most teams, it's unclear on how a driver, regardless of how good they are, uh, is going to conjure his own track position. Interesting stuff. I look forward to it. The second iteration of the Roval on Sunday should be good. 
And finally, the return of the Positive Regression Scouting Network. If you don't remember, we asked and you guys delivered. Uh, listeners, listeners are now our scouts for the Positive Regression Scouting Network, uh, looking at some of the best young talent out there in America on dirt, on pavement, on whatever you want. We'll take it. But uh, David, we have some submissions. So who is being scouted out there? Who should we know about? We've got two good ones uh, on this episode. The first is Kevin Matz scouting Ty Gibbs, 16-year-old nice. K&N and East and ARCA driver from Huntersville, North Carolina. Kevin writes, Ty Gibbs wasted no time and immediately took full advantage of his equipment by capturing five runner-up finishes across six collective starts in ARCA and K&N. By late June, it seemed he'd finally decided he didn't want to continue the trend of serving as a bridesmaid. A final lap nudge to Sam Mayer at Gateway allowed Ty to secure his first Arkham Menard Series win. He followed that up with an additional top five finish in uh, six starts to finish out August with his only hiccup coming on the dirt track at the Illinois State Fairground due to a fuel injection issue. This brings us to September, where Ty is a perfect two for two. He was able to tally his second ARCA Series win at Salem Speedway and doubled down this past weekend, earning his first K&N East victory at New Hampshire. Um, I tell you what, there's going to be there's going to be a little bit of fan backlash because Ty Gibbs is the grandson of Joe Gibbs and he's been given good stuff. But listen, Alan, when you have the best equipment in the field and you go out and win with it, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, at least until he climbs the ladder. Ty Gibbs is doing his job. Exactly. And that's all you can ask of him. Look, there's always going to be the haves or have nots or some people in good equipment, some people in not good equipment. But if you have the best equipment, you should be out there winning. And if Ty Gibbs is doing that, that means he is doing what he should be doing. You can't knock that just because you might be bitter about his last name or the funding that he has. There are plenty of rich kids that do not win races. So Congrats to you, Ty Gibbs, uh, coming into your own. You know, let's give him a little time to develop here. He's 16 years old, but great scouting report. I was there when, uh, in Gateway when he got that win and, and coach Gibbs was there as well. It was a pretty cool scene. It was right before the truck race. So it was a nice, nice moment for the Gibbs family. Who, who else we got? And David Schott is scouting Derek Krause, 18 year old K&N West and truck series driver from Stratford, Wisconsin. David writes, since my last report, Derek Krause has sustained the success he had with the number 16 Bill McAnally team. Though his quest for the K&N East title ended because of missed races at Bristol and New Hampshire, he scored top 10 finishes in the other two races at Watkins Glen and Gateway, the latter being a combination race with the West Series. On the West Series side, he is still atop the standings with four races remaining 29 points ahead of his teammate, the highly publicized Haley Deegan. Deegan is still within reach of the title, but the momentum is with Krause, who has been extending his lead with each of his last five races. Alan, you've seen uh, Derek bits and pieces um, in the truck series, and as an 18-year-old, he made his first mile-and-a-half start 
in Las Vegas, but it did come to a premature end. Yeah, unfortunately, just 77 laps uh, with transmission issues. And obviously he's got talent that, that we deserve to see more of, right? He is earning these looks at, at bigger and better. And we saw that out in Las Vegas. He's got Kevin Bellacourt as a crew chief in the truck series. Uh, if you don't remember, he was uh, Justin Haley's crew chief in the truck series last year when Justin Haley made it all the way to Homestead being one of the final four. So he's got good support behind him. A lot of people that, that really believe in young Derek Krause. And I, I look forward to seeing more of him. It seems like the, the natural step is for him to eventually be in a truck ride. And I look forward uh, to that step and seeing what he can do with it and maybe adding uh, he'll come in as a champion. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, and he's in that Toyota camp. And uh, if you've been paying attention, Christopher Bell moving to the Cup Series next year. We're seeing Harrison Burton, a Truck Series driver, now making some Xfinity starts. That opens a door for uh, the Truck Series for Derek Krause. He might uh, might be the Toyota pick to click next season if he keeps this going. Um, listeners, if you would like to be in charge of scouting a top NASCAR Cup Series prospect, please head to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com to sign up. We want to be kept up to date. You are certainly allowed to request a driver, or we can assign one for you. I promise it will be a quality prospect. I might inadvertently give you your new favorite driver. You never know. So go to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com to sign up. Yeah, and love. I love the I love the idea of the scouting network. I love the reports that we get. And I keep saying, if you go to your local short track and support it, and there is someone you think we should know about, we would love to hear them. So if they may not be in the K and N series or, or something that uh, that we hear about on a regular basis, if there's someone we should know about, go out there and scout them and come tell us about him or her because we would like to hear about it. Great idea, David. The Positive Regression Scouting Network. Well, that's it for episode 36. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That stuff really does help this podcast gain some visibility. It's been awesome so far this year. The word of mouth, the word of tweet, but all that comes back to ratings and reviews as well sometimes. And so that stuff really does help. So tell your friends, uh, your help in spreading the word is much, much appreciated. If you have any questions, you know we love to answer them on here on the pod. So we want to answer them. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D on Twitter. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on this week? I will have another Xfinity Series playoff cheat sheet in advance of the Roval this weekend. That will be on motorsportsanalytics.com. As for my work on The Athletic, the speed rankings were updated on Monday and contained notes about Kevin Harvick, Jimmy Johnson, and Daniel Hemrick, who called RCR's Richmond setup garbage. Uh, loving, uh, loving post dismissal hemorrhage. Very honest. <laughs> Later uh, in the week, you'll, uh, you'll see a article on Brad Keselowski, who is again a quiet championship contender, but quite a good one. Four top five finishes in his last five races. Can this methodical results getting land him in the championship for? I investigate as much. So. Be sure to check all of that out. And if you're at the Roval this weekend uh, and want to meet, tweet at me. I will uh, happily engage in a cordial meeting. So look forward to meeting all of you. 
Good stuff. I will see you there as well. I will try to be there if any of that happens. Um, uh, David, always busy. Good stuff there. If you are listening to this on Thursday morning, that means you are a subscriber. So thank you, first of all. Uh, tonight on Race Hub on Thursday, I will be interviewing Kurt Bush about the Roval. Remember, he comes in below the cut line, but comes in obviously with a lot of experience dealing with pressure and did extra some uh, little added research this week on the racetrack. We talk about that. Make sure you watch Race Hub or check out my Twitter feed for that. Uh, race day this weekend, Sunday from the Roval. We are back at noon on FS1. Uh, two cool pieces coming up as well. The making of the Roval Trophy producers over at FS1. My buddy Rob McFall did a really good story that, uh, he, let me uh, be a part of in terms of how they make a trophy. And I think you'll find that interesting. And I don't want to promise too much because it's not confirmed yet, but let's not forget who is driving the pace car, David, at the Roval. Do you remember? Uh, is it Mario Andretti? It is Mario freaking Andretti. And I'm hoping it works out. You may just see me interviewing him. On Sunday at the Roval. If that happens, it will be a professional highlight. So if you like me at all, keep your fingers crossed for that. But uh, check in there. Make sure you just keep it. Watch uh, all the racing action all weekend. It's going to be good. But as always, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for uh, indulging us on the podcast every week. Hopefully we teach you something. Uh, make you a little smarter of a race fan. We appreciate you listening to Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Have an awesome weekend, everybody. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.